0: There's a line between personal data and health data, and only the people whose data it is can make the decision on what they want to share.
1: This is Meaningful Medicine. In a challenging and unpredictable world with high burnout rates, this is a podcast where incredible individuals share their most meaningful patient experiences and focus on those moments of positivity and joy that sparked their love of healthcare and changed the way they practice medicine.
2: Hi, I'm Nicole Hohenstein and I'm a fourth year medical student at UCSF. Hi, I'm Shiva
3: Kayambashi. I'm a doctor and professor of family and community medicine at UCSF.
2: We're the co-hosts of Meaningful Medicine. We created this podcast to highlight stories of healthcare professionals who have found a sense of meaning, resilience, and joy in their work.
3: Hi, Shiva. how are you doing today? Hi, Nicole. I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you today?
2: I'm doing well. I'm so excited today to be talking to Dr. Priya Joshi about technology. I think technology has really been creeping into all of our worlds, especially the medical world, healthcare field. And I'd love to hear your experience because you worked as a physician when there was paper charts, when electronic medical records did not exist. And then we're there for the transition to the electronic medical record, a lot of technology now creeping in. I'd love to hear about your experience.
3: Oh, absolutely, Nicole. It makes me sound old, doesn't it? I am a little bit old, but I. <laughs> back in the old days, uh, we did everything by paper. One of the good things about paper charting was you really could read the quality. I mean, sometimes you couldn't read the handwriting. That's always been an issue. You know, physicians are are kind of notorious for having some terrible handwriting. And so there were serious problems with sometimes not being able to read the previous physician's notes. Uh, And so they were almost useless. I remember there were times when I would be looking through the chart and I can't make anything out. So what was the point of the person before me even writing? That's an extreme, but not terribly uncommon. The good thing, was that for, for those people whose handwriting you could make out, it was pretty accurate, I would say, because people did write what they did. If they did a physical exam, they wrote what their physical exam was. If they didn't, they didn't. If they And they wrote out their thoughts. And it was really more intentional, I think, much more carefully thought out and and written. And again, for what it's worth, the problem with it was that we would often, you know, you'd be seeing people in the emergency department and you didn't know. A patient came in by ambulance, but you didn't have their record. And so you didn't know and the patient might not be able to tell you what was going on. What are their meds? What are their past medical history uh, diagnoses? Um, And so on. Um, Maybe they were recently in the hospital, but we don't have that because the paper chart can't be found. So I remember lots and lots of problems with not having the availability of the records everywhere you go, because it was limited to one chart. But then with the transition to electronic records, I think those benefits were there. Like you had the record. If you were in the ED or if you were in the clinic or wherever you were, you had the record. The problems are... One, for physicians, clinicians, uh, learning how to use the record, there's a big learning curve and a lot of frustration for people because they end up spending a lot of time on the computer rather than face-to-face with the patient. And so that's one, I think, detriment from it. And the other one is accuracy, I think. I'm sort of minimizing my uh, sort of summary about it, but I think accuracy is limited. I think some things might be accurate, like the meds and maybe the basic diagnoses, but the notes are not always accurate. Often there's auto auto-fill. You sort of copy and paste the previous note and the previous note and they just get copied and pasted for efficiency, but not necessarily accuracy. So a lot of wrong things that were put in the chart from before continue on, and I think sometimes patient care really suffers from that. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag, I think, but that's been my experience with it. I'm not sure one is better than the other, but there are challenges either way.
2: That was a great introduction to what we're going to be discussing today. I think that copy forward button really creates these novels that a lot of physicians don't have the time or the energy to go through. And then, you know, just as in our interview with Dr. Voder a couple t- episodes ago, we discussed kind of these inaccurate labels that can follow these patients um, forward and really potentially affect their care. So I think these are really important topics that we're going to be discussing. I'm really excited to get to introduce someone that I actually met on the wards at the VA and had the pleasure of working with, Dr. Priya Joshi. She is the Chief Health Informatics Officer of the San Francisco VA Medical Center and a VA Innovation Fellow who works in both inpatient and outpatient internal medicine. She has centered her career around the designing, implementing, and analyzing of health data And innovations to ensure our technology is accountable for structurally improving mortality, morbidity, symptoms, and administrative efficiency while closing inequities in care. Welcome, Dr. Joshi.
0: Thank you. I am excited to be here. And for everyone who gets to hear, hopefully, this part not being edited out of the recording. Nicole was wonderful to work with on the wards, and and I think knowing her is what brought me here today, so I'm really privileged to be here on multiple fronts. (laughs) I would
3: echo that. Nicole is awesome. Thanks, Dr. Joshi, for joining us. We love to start out each of our episodes in Meaningful Medicine by asking our guest, in short, if you could share a meaningful moment from sometime early on in your training that was particularly formative or a defining experience.
0: Yeah, this is going to relate to my career overall. But, you know, early on in my experience as a resident, and, and I did for the record, also start with paper charts, I realized that technology is used to identify who has disease and who has well controlled disease. So in residency, I was a primary care resident, I would often scan through my patient list and say and see who I was seeing for the day, and then use our quality metrics to figure out who was missing from appointments who had high blood pressure that needed control or diabetes that needed control. And I would often find that the people who I saw in front of me in the office weren't on those lists for hypertensive patients or diabetic patients, even if they certainly were hypertensive or diabetic. And as I met patients, one patient at a time and saw who was on the list, who wasn't on the list, I realized people with more barriers to care were often not on the list. And that really started my whole career in informatics on this question of why is it that some people show up as hypertensive and others don't? And how does that affect people when they aren't getting offered medications that change the mortality? And so like with many things in my career, there are individual uh, interactions that made an impact, but there were also, population interactions that had an impact. And in that particular experience has always stood out to me.
2: Wow. Thank you so much for sharing. I'd love to hear kind of what informatics is. I've heard this term often and I'd love to hear how you define it.
0: Yeah. Ingest um, informatics is like cryptocurrency. No one really knows what it is. And even if you explain it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. <laughs> um, it means a lot of things to a lot of people. For, for me, it really is. It's a mode of treating technology as if it is a social determinant of health or facilitator of health. It is just as impactful a tool as the SGLT2 that we prescribe to CHF patients in affecting patient outcomes. And in, in, in particular, in my career, what that means is it's a way for us to use data to actually ask what's going on and a way for us to use technology, data, innovation, software to change what's happening to patients.
2: That's so interesting. Thank you so much for defining that for us. And something that I know about you and I'd love to learn more about with our audience is, you know, right after residency, you were recruited to a startup called Caroline. And in residency, you came up with this motto, fewer clicks, more care. Can you explain kind of, you know, how you came up with this motto and really how you started working at this startup?
0: Yeah, I, you know, how I came up with a motto, I, I don't know. Often my icebreaker question is what would be an autobiography name or what's a great band name? So at some point I was walking around clicking a lot of buttons and it came to me. So I don't know if I have much beyond that random insight there. In terms of getting recruited, I was known as a medical educator in residency and, and following residency. It was a core part of my career. And one of my mentors in residency, uh, Suba Javia who runs Caroline, met me, heard some ideas I had to make our technology automatically nudge people to educate certain topics, particularly topics that were high yield for the shelf. And she said, that sounds great. Why don't you help develop it? And then after I worked with her on that, she said, Hey, why don't you actually just do this for money? (laughs) And so, so she recruited me to our startup, showed me the ropes of how to change clinical thinking into something that means something to programmers and how to align what we're developing with the clinical care that we, that we seek to deliver and one or two short months changed my entire career. That is so interesting. Dr. Joshi, there's some things that I've
3: heard from a lot of clinician friends of mine is about how technology, you know, we talked about this, it's friend or foe, you know, is it helping you or is it hurting you? And is it helping your relationships with patients or is it hurting them? And, you know, is it helping your efficiency or your sense of meaning in your work or hurting it? So I just wanted to share with you something that Nicole and I were reviewing. There's a systematic review that was published in the Journal of Applied Clinical Informatics in 2021 that found that physicians, on average, spend nearly 37% of their workday on a computer in both inpatient and outpatient settings. And nurses spend 22%, probably more, in my experience, of their workday in the inpatient setting on a computer. And I'm curious what your experience is and what you think about how that affects the quality of physician experiences, the quality of patient experiences, and and outcomes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have so many thoughts on that. I think this, the shortest version of my thought is everything good comes with something bad. In some ways, the dose makes the poison, but in many ways, it's just, as you discussed, You know, being able to create a problem list allows you to say, okay, now I can keep better track of what diagnoses a patient has without having to read someone's handwriting. But it also means that problems that shouldn't be there then linger for decades, if not for the entirety of someone's life. And so I think a lot a lot about the question that you're asking really is the core of this field of clinical informatics and saying, how can we make our technology more impactful? And for so long, our focus has been, let's just get everyone on an electronic health record that we didn't really get to ask that second question. And we started developing the answer to it in quality metrics. How can we use our technology to see who is hypertensive and make sure their hypertension is better? But we didn't get to ask, what administrative inefficiencies, what is it about note writing that can impact care on the electronic health record? And how can we leverage various facets of software or the health record to make it more likely that patients will receive good care without encumbering clinicians? And there's no hard and fast answer to that, but I think every small decision we make down to the alerts that get generated from our health record, to the clinical care that we feel nudged to provide because someone is showing up as hypertensive on a quality metric even if they're 90 95 years old every single one of those decisions bear scrutiny as a clinical decision and the more that we think of technology as a clinical diagnostic and a vector for treatment the more we'll be able to make sure that we're proactively answering those questions that we're proactively making decisions on what technology we leverage and how in order to improve patient outcomes. If there if it was so easy to figure out what in technology would lead to harm or what in technology would lead to benefit. First, I wouldn't have a job and you wouldn't be hearing from me. But second, you know, I think there are a lot of societal issues that would be very easily addressed in a way that aren't easily addressed because social dynamics, especially through technology, especially in regard to healthcare, are are change over time and are are very very hard to predict the impact.
2: That's really interesting. I'm curious kind of looking into the future, what innovations in informatics can we look forward to in the context of nationalized healthcare and really centering the conversation on your work at the VA?
0: Yeah, uh, okay, I'm gonna try not to ramble here, but I, I'll be excited to talk about this. So first, you know, as I mentioned in residency, I started sitting and asking, why are some people showing up on my list as, as hypertensive and why are some people not? Currently, I'm designing algorithms with my collaborator, Tanya Puchiska, who agrees with me that we should be defining a diabetic patient by their A1C or by their glucose. I know that everyone listening to this is going to agree with that, but we should and we don't currently. And so we are creating algorithms to help find people with disease according to biological markers that are less influenced by bias. And right now I do run a preventive care program outpatient. And, and we're using the people detected by that algorithm to make sure that we catch them up on gold standard care. So we're using that idea technology for good, acknowledging that if we don't use novel algorithms to define diabetes by A1C, we will miss a whole host of patients who deserve care and technology shouldn't have the power to do that. So on the one hand, we're re asking how does technology improve quality? On the other hand, uh, as I'm discussing social dynamics, we are looking at how we can look at charts and find out if there is bias in care or help providers be aware of bias that they may be putting in documentation. The difference between saying a patient wasn't able to take a medication and, and refused care. It's a big difference and it matters. And so we're finding ways to help show providers privately, hey, this documentation difference matters, and it turns out minority patients receive the burden of being portrayed negatively in charts more than non-minority patients. So it is worth thinking, is this the documentation that you want to practice? So we're creating flags to identify when there's biased language in charts getting people automated emails that say, hey, like we flagged this phrasing. It doesn't mean that there was bias in care, but we wanted to make sure you were aware that we know that this gets disproportionately associated with bias so that clinicians can make their own decisions on whether they wanna change their wording. And on that line, we're also creating flags to figure out when there might be misinformation getting delivered to patients. If patients are asking about ivermectin as a COVID treatment, for instance, and how we can change the information streams that people get digital resilience is about making sure patients get positive accurate information about their health and can we as a health system say if we know patients are getting misinformation it is our obligation to improve their health by getting them engaged and getting them information
2: thank you so much for the work you're doing for health equity i think it's so so important and i think technology ties directly to it i'm curious You know, with patients who you mentioned kind of aren't showing, aren't the ones showing up in clinic, aren't the ones being flagged, um, really are those minority patients that really do need the help. Your program is really highlighting those patients and finding ways to have that outreach. I'm curious with technology, do those patients have the same access to the technology? Are they able to receive the information you send to them? Do they respond via email? Are they the ones that are joining the telehealth visits? According to the CDC, there has been a 154% increase in telehealth visits in 2020 compared to the same period in 2019. So this 63-fold increase in Medicare visits via telehealth due to the pandemic has really skyrocketed in not only the elderly population, but I think a lot of other populations as well. And I'm curious, with your work, do you notice that those people who may not show up for those in-person visits, do they still have that access to the telehealth? And is this an area where technology can fill in that gap?
0: Yeah, That's a great question. Um, so I, I do, for, for the programs I run, we call, mail people letters, send them messages via email. So we use every mode to get in contact with people. Because, you know, as you can imagine, so I don't see my doctor every year, I don't see my doctor every few years. And if you imagine them reaching out to me via phone, the first thing I would do is reject the call because it would be an unknown number. The second thing I would do is ignore the email, then maybe I would read a letter, right? And so if you imagine people who, I'm not marginalized from care, but who are marginalized from care, who have a reason to not take the call, to see the email, to to open the letter, we really do owe them everything we can to engage them in care in a positive forum, And so, though this doesn't apply to all the patients who I take care of, we really do make every single effort to make sure that we've done everything we can to engage patients and then do that repeatedly. And so, because we have monitoring over who we've been able to contact and who we haven't been able to contact, We're fairly successful at contacting people and getting, getting a response. I would say over 90% of the people who I work with do end up calling back. And core to that is they get my cell phone number. So they have something to call back. That's not like, you know, to a random, to a random phone number in the ether. In terms of telehealth visits, it's interesting because. I'll speak the, for the VA because I don't know that much about Medicare. We used to not count visits for hypertension management if they were televisits in quality metrics. And we also used to actually we continue to define hypertension as a patient is hypertensive if they have had two visits with their doctor specifically for the purposes of hypertension management which means that if we aren't counting televisits, we're ignoring whole swaths of people who really deserve care. And so in many ways, I think the reform needed to happen in saying, hey, telehealth is okay, it's a good way to deliver care. And by making that adjustment, we made it much more likely for people's existing engagement to count for their healthcare in the administrative version of counting and also incentivize providers to reach out to people with more convenient modes of providing care for patients, which really is telehealth. So I think by and large, the shift happened not because patients were hesitant to come to the office, but because they had a more convenient option to receive care. And now it is the norm to receive care, at least partially through that option, if not completely through that option of telehealth. Thanks, Dr. Joshi, for
3: sharing that. I want to see if I could bring this to the technology aspect to the actual patient encounter. So you've made it really clear about the quality of care can be so enhanced by the appropriate correct use of technology in medicine. There is some evidence, growing evidence, and I think it's from 2015 in the British Medical Journal, that patients who had clinical encounters with high computer use were less likely to rate their care as excellent. But something like 48% of the small cohort considered their care excellent if their physicians used higher computer use, and more like 83% would say that their, their experience was excellent with the physicians who had lower computer use. And that reminds me of a... A drawing that I can't remember where I saw this, but I think it was from a physician colleague who's a pediatrician whose pediatric patient drew a little picture of her encounter at the doctor's office. The little girl is sitting on the exam table with her mommy and daddy and baby sister or brother, and they're all huddled together over here. And the doctor is all the way in the corner facing the corner where the computer screen is and back to the family. And that was the little girl's experience or child's experience of being at the doctor's office. So the experience of care might not be matching. And I'm curious if there's anything in your work that you've been working on currently or coming down the pike that, are there any ways to make that better? Because also, by the way, there are other studies that show that physicians aren't dissatisfied either. So it's not just the patient saying, I didn't feel touched or heard, but also the clinicians are saying, I don't feel the meaning of my work when I'm really just mostly looking at a computer or a tablet.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So so this question of what is it that providers are doing? Why are, why are they forced to look at their computer for a visit? And I use that word very intentionally, forced, right? Because we can design technology to do quite a number of things. And when I think of, when I was in primary care, Shiva, I know you do this more often than me, so I'm curious what your take is. When I'm on the computer for a long period of my visit, it's because I'm finding information. I am trying to see a chart note. I'm trying to figure out whether, God forbid, if I ever find out if my patient got a pap smear on time or not. You know, we're trying to figure out information that's not clearly listed anywhere in the chart. And so I think that's a system's consequence. I think that's the design of technology that doesn't tell providers in a second everything that they need to know. So, we bought a software recently that allows you to completely pull in exactly what information you want before a patient shows up to your office, where you open a note, you move on your dot phrase, and it pulls in information from every single VA across the nation that you need to know about the patient right in front of you. And the theory of that is it really should take less than 30 seconds to find out all that information, to read it and to then turn to your patient and humanize that information and humanize their life and make sure you're bringing their needs into care and making sure that you're using data to help guide what they see their needs as. And so I think exactly what you're describing is a metric for failure. We can use administrative processes to say, hey, if our physicians are on their computer for 40% of a visit, for 50% of a visit, we're doing something wrong. And say, we should figure out what they're doing and use technology to automate all the things that they're searching for. I think also on the flip side, there's this interesting experience of, why is it that your physician is on your computer and why aren't we getting information from people? So we're trying another innovation that says, okay, we have a list of questions to ask people. We have technology like email that's been around for some time. Why don't we have those standardized questions and send it to people before their visit so that they can fill it out, push it to their provider, and they get to review it. Simple as that, we can do that. And then on the last end of this, you know, we can hire scribes to type in notes that physicians are often writing to their visits, but we can also have automated audio recordings that with high fidelity turn a conversation into written script in the form of a soap note, why not integrate that and so everything that you're describing that end outcome that metric of hey what leads to a physician being on their computer for a large portion of their visit i think that is a meaningful end outcome that that is an administrative inefficiency that results in care in the way where technology becomes a barrier to it and we want to see those two find synergy so so i'm i'm with you i think that observation is is spot on for what makes me think something needs to change.
2: I love just the different facets that technology has encompassed in healthcare. I think thinking about the computer in the room, thinking about our data being collected and propagated forward every time we visit the hospital, the clinic, the emergency department, and then thinking about how we communicate with patients and whether that be a phone call, email, telehealth. And I I guess for our podcast, thinking about communication and that connection that we have with patients, do you find that you're still able to have those meaningful conversations and those meaningful connections with patients, even if you aren't necessarily in the same room together? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a generation perhaps where that's just the
0: expectation. It's more nerve wracking to be in the same room with someone than it is to not. So perhaps that might be my my bias in this conversation. But for the most part, at least I feel comfortable. <laughs> I think the question of whether that serves the patient's well really depends on the person, right? I think we all do kind of have preferences on whether we want to receive information through <laughs> a video through a voice on the phone or through a person in front of you and i think one core of what might make one person more comfortable with one iteration of that and not another is is really trust right it's can i trust that the person on the other side of that phone call has put thought into my care if they don't see me Can they see the way that I'm reacting to the things that they're saying and know whether I need more information or not? Because it's not always easy to advocate for yourself in a in a physician office. And, you know, importantly, how has the medical care system treated me? And therefore, how much benefit of the doubt am I able to give the medical system in the care that I'm receiving? But at the end of the day I think the core of that question is how do we foster trust through the various modes of technology with which we deliver
2: care. I love that. Thank you so much for talking through that and I I would love for our audience if you feel comfortable can you share an example, you know, a recent example of a patient that was captured through this project and that you really affected their care?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And and I'm going to preface, and this is important, it's it's not that I am providing unique care, it's that physicians are denied the algorithms that allow them to provide the same care, because I made novel algorithms to detect undetected disease, right? So if people were given that information in the first place, then you wouldn't really need me. I think our providers are really, really phenomenal here. All I am is a extra layer of support, because we've not had technology that detects people equitably for so long that the list of people who weren't given care as a consequence of not showing up on those panel management dashboards is really long. And so really I'm here to catch up on their care faster. And so I hope that it's clear for all listening that there's some things unique about me, but the fact that I'm detecting, I'm using algorithms to detect people's care is what allows me to catch them on the earlier side. In particular, I'll say, so this is a known controversy in care right now. When using creatinine to measure kidney function, the institution, the VA, but many institutions use a race correction, a race, I guess, not correction, right, to misestimate people's kidney function, Uh, particularly Black and African-American identifying people have a 20% boost to their kidney function in a way that leads to delayed diagnosis of kidney disease. When you either don't do that correction or use a novel biomarker called Cystatin C, that's like creatinine, but it comes from red blood cells and doesn't use a race adjustment, then in both scenarios, you can find kidney disease earlier. The core reason that I was able to do my preventive care intervention was our nephrologists are huge proponents of Cystatin C, are leaders in designing more equitable pathways to diagnosing kidney disease and said, okay, we need to fund someone's time to do this. And so I routinely have conversations predominantly with Black and African-American identifying patients, but regardless of race about people who had a cystatin C that really did confirm that they had kidney disease that they knew nothing about. And we're talking about noting that cutoff for being diagnosed with kidney disease is either an EGFR, an estimated glomerular filtration rate of less than 60, or a microalbuminuria of greater than 30 milligrams per gram. And so when we're talking about people who I have uniquely diagnosed, it's people whose EGFRs, were in the 90s often. And now with Cystatin C, with follow-up testing, we find that it's really probably in the 40s and sustained in the 40s. Sometimes it's more stark than that and sometimes less, but it's really a notable difference. And often you'll hear me say, I'm gonna start with checking in. It looks like some of your lab tests suggest that you have kidney disease. Has anyone talked to you about that before? And often you'll hear no, which we have plenty of data to know even when there is a known EGFR that's low that that's the case that patients aren't often aware of that information and then separately i ask them what kidney disease means to them because the first thing that comes to mind is dialysis right and then help them modulate this is early disease we're catching it early we have medications that can help change the trajectory of your kidney disease and these are the these are going to be the things that we do to modify the progression of your kidney disease so you do everything you can if that's concordant with your goals to mitigate that risk of kidney disease progression and so i can give you uh, examples of that conversation over and over and over again because that's what i spend half of my day doing but in broad strokes it often is just that of making sure people know that they have the diagnosis know that inequitable tests were used to not allow them to be diagnosed earlier i know that there is still plenty that we can do because we're instituting a program to catch it early
3: that's just awesome <laughs> that's really wonderful i it was, seriously that's just really wonderful that you're able to do that and how much the the technology is just helping you to bring better care to people seriously that's a really wonderful down-to-earth example that's unfortunately far too common
0: well i'd like to make sure I thank my my mentors, Michelle Australia, Michael Schlippeck, and Cynthia Delgado, who essentially worked together in various modes to create collaboratives that help address these issues and also create national articles and change that allowed this intervention to exist. So in just like with everything that I do, I'm not the person who decides the innovative idea. Someone else says, hey, there's this big problem, and all I do is help translate that into an action using technology. There are very few people who base their career around improving equity, particularly more than a few years ago when nationally, that wasn't something that fostered a generous career. Nationally, And I worked on equity before no one cared. And we had people who really took a leap of faith in saying, this is important, that allowed us to get to this moment faster. So many thanks to them.
2: And many thanks to you. I think you have to also acknowledge all the work you've been doing. It's really incredible. I have a perfectly
0: sustained ego. I'm totally okay with the thank you. (laughs) I just want to make sure I don't leave other people out of it.
2: (laughs) I love it. I love it. Um, I want to, you know, ask you if you could study anything and or fix any problem. Is there something that you've been noticing that just is you perpetually are just running into this issue and if you had all the time and resources, this would be this passion project for you that you would love to change.
0: Yeah. I mean besides making universal healthcare available at every front of a nation, I think really for me that there are I'm gonna take two right now, but they're related, I promise. So I would say on the one front, I think data should be democratized. And that's my sole answer to this. And in particular, I think that means two things. One, I think i shouldn't have to have to fax someone to get data from ucsf when i work at the san francisco va that is very very close less than a 10 minute drive away i think all all clinical providers should have access to a patient's data who they're taking care of in order to improve their care. If you don't know what testing they've gotten before, you're gonna repeat it. You're gonna expose people to unnecessary radiation through repeat CT scans. You're gonna make someone get a colonoscopy twice or another pap smear, which let's be frank, no one wants, right? And, uh, and without having data be accessible for patient care, and I mean smoothly accessible, I don't mean that I click on the information from UCSF and see it as like essentially the equivalent of an electronic scan. I mean that when I search for lab trends, that the data pulls in seamlessly between VA data and UCSF data to make sure that I can see everything at once. So democratizing data means making data accessible for people providing care who need that data. And on the other hand, we can send Bluetooth blood pressure cuffs to patients. I can get Bluetooth scales to patients. People have Fitbits now. We have all these ways for patients to tell us what is happening in their day-to-day life that is impactful in their health. And we do owe it to them to find ways for them to communicate information they want to communicate to us easily we need to make sure that they are empowered to do the gold standard home blood pressures that we say that they should be doing anyways, right? And so I think democratizing data also means making it so patients really do have ownership over the additional data they wanna send to us. And ownership is important here because you can set up Fitbits to, let's say automatically pull in data to an electronic health record. And I don't think that's right either. I think it really should be that patients choose when they want to send us data, acknowledging that there's a line between personal data and health data, and only the people whose data it is can make the decision on what they want to share.
3: That's awesome. Dr. Joshi, in closing our interview with you, we would love to hear if you have any advice for medical trainees
0: who are at the beginning stages of their careers. Easy advice. And Nicole, I'm actually curious that I've given this to you. But your physician style has to revolve around a true north. You're going to be pressured the minute that you hit the ability to order anything independently to meet some hospital metric, continued stay or readmissions, things like that, that are intended to line with quality care, but may not foster processes that are. And so if you stay committed to, I'll use my example, right, mortality, morbidity, symptoms, and administrative efficiency, if you stay aligned, with an outcome that you know at the end of your career, if you move the needle on even a little bit that you'd be proud of, then you can really develop an intentionally meaningful career. It is hard to do that when you're pulled with a lot of requirements from a lot of people and a lot of systems without full knowledge of why you're being required to do something. And so having your own internal metric of, this is the provider I wanna be, this is the care i want to stay committed to allows you to center yourself on that care and for me when you're translating nebulous things like technology and algorithms into care it really does help out because it tells you what you should have a sense of urgency on and what really is worth dedicating your very limited time in your career to and uh, it's not that i didn't know this earlier It's that I wish I knew that I have full permission and I don't need anyone else's permission to really stay tethered to that at any point in my career. And as you go through your career, the earlier you're allowed to tether yourself to outcomes that matter to you, the more you'll find you'll be able to deliver those outcomes and be the physician who delivers it in the way that you'd like to.
2: I love that. I love just being intentional and really being thoughtful about who you want to be and the clinician that you want to dedicate yourself to. It's amazing.
3: Dr. Joshi, thank you so much for your time in sharing with us today. This has just been such a pleasure and really eye-opening and informative. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Yeah, because I've unroofed the problem with algorithms, hopefully. (laughs) So now we all know about it. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. It's not very many people who hear about a data nerd and think this is a fascinating conversation. So, uh, thank you for inviting me to to your podcast and I'm 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 truly privileged to to be here.
2: Thank you for tuning in today and allowing us to be one of your meaningful moments.
1: Please rate, review and subscribe and share with friends, family and colleagues. Meaningful Medicine was produced by Shiva Kayambashi, Nicole Holstein, David Elkin, and Katherine Chan. Editing by Nicole Hohenstein. Intro and closing by Daniel Wendling. On Meaningful Medicine, we are careful to ensure that all stories are compliant with healthcare privacy laws and details may have been changed to ensure patient confidentiality. All views expressed are of the person speaking and not their employer.